a big thank you to all my patrons who support the Engineered Mind podcast. Hi and welcome to the Engineered Mind podcast. In this podcast, we cover topics such as engineering, artificial intelligence, neuroscience, and other interesting topics to educate, inspire, and engineer people's minds all around the world. I'm your host, Joseph, and for this episode of the podcast, I am very happy to welcome Chris Rokokas to my show. Chris is an applied mathematics instructor at MIT, a senior research analyst in the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, and the director of scientific research at Pumas AI. He is the lead developer of the SciML Open Source Scientific Machine Learning Organization, which develops widely used software for scientific modeling and inference. Chris' work on high-performance differential equation solving is the centerpiece accelerating many applications from the MIT Caltech Climate Climate Modeling Initiative to the SIAM DS Web Award-winning Dynamical System GL Toolbox. Chris is also the lead developer of Pumas, the foundational software of Pumas AI for nonlinear mixed effects modeling in clinical pharmacology. For this work in pharmacology, Chris received the Emerging Scientist Award from ISOP, the highest early career award in pharmacometrics. In this really interesting podcast, Chris and I talked about what physics-informed neural networks are, if solving them is really that easy, we covered Bayesian ordinary differential equations, misconceptions about pins, when to actually use pins and when it does not make any sense, and a lot more on resources and tips from Chris on other topics related to pins. For updates on upcoming podcasts, projects and videos, make sure to follow me on Twitter as well as on Instagram. To join my weekly newsletter, ingenietmind.sh, where I share exclusive content, visit yusef.substack.com. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's my podcast with Chris Rokokas. Welcome, Chris, to my podcast. It's really a pleasure and uh, thank you for taking the time to be on this podcast today. Um, what we want to start with is, can you give us like a one minute bio? Who is Chris? What does he do and what is his specialization? Hi, I'm Chris Rikakis. Uh, I'm a applied mathematics instructor at MIT. I'm a senior research analyst in the School of Pharmacy at the University of Maryland. And I'm also the director of scientific research at Pumas AI. Um, my research is kind of centered around numerical differential equations and scientific machine learning, which is essentially how do you mix machine learning with mechanistic modeling? So you know, how do you do a lot of this uh, you know, physics-based differential equation modeling? And how do you do this in a way that incorporates the machine learning and makes use of, you know, the high order stiff ODE solvers and, you know, all these, uh, you know, methods for ill-conditioned equations and how do you make use of that in a way that incorporates machine learning, automated model discovery and, and general um, generation of surrogates for accelerating the, the simulation. Mm -hmm. That sounds all very complicated and super interesting, Chris. Um, what we want to start with is, um, can you define what PINs are? So PIN stands for Physics Informed Neural Networks. Um, can you explain the fundamentals of PINs and then we'll delve more into the details? Yeah, so PINs are physics-informed neural networks, which means that they are neural networks that have essentially a regularization against physical equations, right? So physical equations are specified in terms of differential equations, right? So you have, for example, you know, Newton's laws of gravity. Um, that's a differential equation, which is describing how the change in force is related to the mass of objects and their distances, right? So, so if you take any of these physical equations, they're pretty much all differential equations. And what the physics-informed neural network does is it says, well, you know, we, we have to, we actually have to do two things, right? We have we have physical equations which we kind of know are approximately true, and we have our um, our data which we know is like really true, but we might have too sparse of data, right? So 
what we want to do is we want to make it so that way um, we always try to match towards the data, but when we don't see data, it should be acting as something that matches our physical assumptions, right? Um, and, and so the way that you do that, right, the, the you know, physics-informed neural networks without data is, is kind of the first thing to think about, is that a physics-informed neural network without data is just a differential equation solver in the form of a neural network. And what, what you can do in that sense is you can say, you know, um, if I'm supposed to be solving this equation such that, you know, like the Poisson's equation that, you know, I have uh, two derivatives in X equals one derivative in T, right? So this is a, or that's the classic heat equation. Um, what you can do is you can say my neural network is the solution to this equation. So my neural network is a, is a function that takes in T and X and spits out a value that's supposed to be the, the solution to the equation. Mm -hmm. Now, how do I know whether it's actually the solution to the equation? Well, I can take one derivative in, in T, and I can take two derivatives in X, and I can subtract those two values. And if it's actually the solution to the PDE, it should be equal to zero, right? Uh, and, and so the loss function is to, you know, sample over space in different ways and then say, how close is this to actually zero? And, and you know, so, so then you, you know that your neural network coefficients are correct when you actually have the sum squared error of all these, you know, the, all these terms uh, close to zero, right? So, so at its core, what the physics-informed neural network is trying to do is it's trying to add this information about partial differential equations and these physical laws to this training process of the neural, of the neural network by, by giving it this loss term that is, here's how close you are to the physics that we know, right? You then take that one step further and you say, well, now my loss has two terms, right? I have one term, which is how close am I to the data points? And I have a second term that is how close uh, am I to the physical equation solution? And then this gives you a way to be able to you know, essentially augment the physics with a little bit extra more and and then hold something that is like the, the solution to the physical equation um, in a way that's like regularized by physics, but matches your data. Mm -hmm. Um. How is it like when you when you deal with pins uh, actually matching the real world physics? Is it that you have to mm -hmm. tweak a lot of settings like hyperparameters to actually match the real world behavior, or is it easy, quote unquote? I mean, so it really depends on the situation, right? So we, we have some documentations in the neural PDJL library where you know a student kind of just said, "Here's a neural network I'm going to pick." When when they trained it, it worked quite well, right? Um, when you get to some cases, in some cases you look at it and you, you try your neural network and your loss function. You know, it, it stops at a certain point and you just go, okay, like this didn't approximate well. And and there is some theory behind it, right? So um, there, there are two things. Uh, one theory is the universal approximation theorem, which says that a neural network, if it's sufficiently large, so if you have a, your your weight matrices are sufficiently large enough, so your, your inner layers are, you know, sufficiently large, um, then a neural network can approximate any function, mm -hmm. right? And, and you can... You, you, you can write that down more rigorously, like as, oh, you know, if you have a function f of x and you have a neural network, then, you know, there or there's a choice of a neural network such that um, its parameters give you like epsilon away for this any x, f, right? Um, so you, you can formalize this discussion a bit more, but essentially, you know, if your neural network is big enough, it'll it'll be able to approximate the function. And so the first thing you have to do is like, you know, if, if you try a neural network out, you, you get a loss in the end and then you kind of go, oh, um, that loss saturated before I thought it should, maybe try a larger neural network, right? Um, but then there's all the, the different choices of different architectures, like, yeah, should you use uh, different activation functions? There's really no theory that I know of on, you know, um, if you choose different activation functions and you'll get lower error in this case, or, you know, what, what properties to look at. So you do kind of have to do this, this, uh, 
this random walk of, you know, here's the different architectures I'm trying, here are the sizes of the neural networks, so look at what, what you're getting as your solution and kind of move it around, right? So in, in that sense, it's a little bit different than what you might be traditionally used to with, you know, just like an ODE solver, there's a tolerance. And if the you're getting too much error, you lower the tolerance, right? So that's very straightforward. And then, and then you know, if you're using, you know, like a loop over like a fixed time step method, you know that if you decrease DT, you're going to decrease your error. In this set, in, in the sense that this is from neural networks, it kind of is true, right? You, you kind of know that there's still this asymptotic limit. If you make your neural network big enough, it'll work. But, um, you, you computationally can't do that, and it's kind of really much more difficult to figure out what that that level is. It's hard to it's hard to really guess what what a you know the first neural network you try what what area you're going to be saturating at. Um, there's a second aspect to it too, right? Which is you know the thing that I kind of glossed over in in the quick definition of a physics informed neural network is really this idea that um, when you when you're evaluating this physics loss, right? You're evaluating at specific points in space. So you know when I say oh you need to take one derivative in t two derivatives in X, you take the difference, and that tells you how bad, you know, how close the the neural network is to the solution of the PDE at this pair TX, right? Um, you can't check every single TX, so how do you actually sample over the space, right? And so you, you can actually prove that if you take more sample points and, you know, and, and they're all distance, uh, delta T, delta X apart, you send delta T, delta X to zero, you can prove that, that your loss estimate over the whole space is converging to you know, the integral of this PDE theory. So, so you can prove that you know, if you take enough sample points in your space, you are getting a pretty good view of how well you're solving the PDE. Um, but this is another thing where it's like, in practice, you know, um, how, did I take enough points in my loss function? And did I, um, and did I pick a big enough neural network? Like, which of these are my two problems right now? It, it, right now, there's, there's not really a nice way to be able to automatically declare between the two. And it kind of takes a little bit of the physical knowledge looking at the solutions you get to kind of tweak it until you get something that, that starts to work out well. I mean, uh, especially for engineers like myself, it's very interesting to work with PDEs, but also ODEs might be uh, relevant depending on which case you're working on. Um, I also saw that you worked on Bayesian uh, Bayesian modeling for ordinary differential equations, where you basically have a physical simulation, correct me if I'm wrong, without explicitly modeling this uh, ODE, that it will be kind of solved. Maybe you can go a little bit into detail. Yeah, so, so Bayesian neural ordinary differential equations is this idea where you can, you know, you can represent parts of the model in the insides of your model by uh, neural networks and then use this to be able to automatically discover the model, right? It's, it's using the same idea of a neural network as a function approximator, mm -hmm. but instead of trying to find the solution, you're trying to find the dynamics. And there's a lot of things that are a bit better if you're looking for dynamics instead of solutions, right? Because you know, if you think about it, um, there's a lot of ODEs that you're kind of told you're kind of told in your class that you know, like you write down this ODE, the ODE looks simple, and your professor says there's no way to ever write down the analytical solution to that, right? Um, so, so right off the bat, you should you know, this, th there's a lot of cases that show that the differential equation itself is a much easier form than the solution to a differential equation. And so it's a much easier training problem to learn the dynamics than it is to learn the solution. Um, but though it does mean that you need to come up with this whole idea of what does backpropagation of a differential equation solver and all this means. Um, 
The other thing that is really nice about that approach is that it allows us to, so, so in, in our work on universal differential equations, we showcase that you can take this idea and say, I have a, I have a full scientific model, right? So, you know, you basically are doing like your, your standard differential equation modeling, you write down your whole model, but then you kind of assume that, you know, like this term right here is something that I have a lot more uncertainty about. In fact, I kind of know it's probably incorrect, right? Um, and in real engineering, you probably, you know, that shows up, right? Like you're, you're like, okay, like this thing is kind of bullshit right here. Right. Um, what you, what you can do is you can say, I'm going to write down my entire model, but the terms that are kind of bullshit, I can turn them into neural networks. And what I can then do is I can use my data to automatically discover what those terms in my model should be. Right? You know, like I could figure out like, oh, should I have had a second order correction to the friction? And you can actually make this spit out these symbolic equations. Um, this this Bayesian neural ODE paper is a is an extension of that work where we then say, well, it, it's a nice to be able to discover equations in a way that uses all your previous physical information, but um, you need uncertainties to that, right? You you need to be able to say something like the probability that you're that you have a second order friction term is ninety five percent, right? Um, because it, it, you know, like, because everything about dealing with data is certainly probabilistic, right? And and you know, the, you you have to be able to handle this question of how do you how do you know that your your what the terms that you're finding are robust to noise and and all these certain things. And so this Bayesian neural ODE paper takes this approach and basically says, is there a way to do automated model discovery of the of the mechanisms? Um, in a way that is probabilistic, where you get Bayesian posteriors, where you know you're basically getting a probability distribution over neural networks, which is basically giving you a probability distribution over functions that you're missing in your model. Which then, uh, which then, when you do, when you perform the symbolic uh, regression approach that we discussed in the UDE paper, um, it, it tells you like what is the probability that you're missing a quadratic term in this part of the model? What is the probability that you're missing, you know, like a linear term over here, right? And that and that's really what what it kind of uh, gets you to. Mm -hmm. And I will definitely link the paper. To be honest, I haven't gone through it like completely, but it looks very interesting. Um, can you maybe explain when can Bayesian, uh, like an ansatz of Bayesian statistics, can go wrong for pins? Yeah. So, um, so for pins and uh, and Bayesian neural ODs. Um, so, so yeah. If, if you want to see the 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 pins version, um, I, I can I can make sure I share the paper on that. Actually, one of my colleagues did the, the version on pins. Um, I did the version on the neural differential equation mm -hmm. approach. Um, but so so the way that the, these approaches can go wrong is if you don't have a good prior, right? You, you, where for a Bayesian approach, you always have to have a prior. And one of the ways that you can come up with the prior is you can, you know, the way that people actually sample neural network parameters is through a distribution, right? So normally inside of the weights, if, if you actually dig into the libraries, like, um, you know, TensorFlow, PyTorch, and, you know, Flux.jl, all these libraries, they have a weight that they, they initialize the weights because if you chose all your initial weights to be zero, you actually get a degenerate gradient at that point, right? So you, you can't start there. So you need to have some distribution. And a lot of the libraries choose something like a Wisher distribution. Um, so what we do is we say, like, you know, this, this seems like a prior that a lot of people are, you know, fundamentally using in the way that they're doing machine learning, right? They're, they're sampling from a Wisher distribution to get their initial condition, and then they're doing optimization. So we say that this is our, our initial distribution is, you know, with this Wisher distribution, um, and so this is our prior distribution, and we do Bayesian uh, inference from that. Um, if your prior is too strong, then you will stay too close to your initial uh, values, right? That's just like a, a common issue with um, 
with Bayesian inference. And so you need to make sure that you like choose a non-informative prior. So you might want to have to, you know, increase the variance of your prior distributions. So that way your prior has less weight in your, in your final inference. Um, and one of the other things that's more quite difficult is that, you know, Bayesian inference is like optimization on steroids, right? Um, like one way to actually do, I mean, Bayesian inference is, is you know, if, if you actually, if you look at Bayesian inference and you say all of my priors are normal distributions and, and all of my, um, all of my measurement errors, all of my likelihoods are normal distributions, find what the absolute maximum of my posterior is, right? That's the MIP estimate, the maximum of posteriori. Um, what you can actually prove in that case is that it's equivalent to doing L2 minimization of Euclidean uh, error. Right. So, so, you know, if you're just trying to get the maximum point of that probability distribution, um, that's equivalent to doing an optimization problem. Mm -hmm. And then what you're trying to do with Bayesian inference is you're trying to say, don't just give me that point, but give me a, an estimate of the entire probability distribution. And so it's, it's always going to be more expensive than just getting one point, right? You're, you're trying to get the whole function instead of just the, the maximum of the function, right? And, and so, you know, you're, it's, it's a very expensive process. And so there's, it means that there's a lot to do in terms of both theory and implementation to make it better. Um, but it also means that um, right now, you know, you, you can hit problems that, you know, are, are seemingly optimizable, but are very hard to do in the Bayesian approach. Mm -hmm. I appreciate um, just, just because of compute. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate Chris. You explained it in a very detailed way. I mean, if there's any confusion around this, we'll get to um, resources that you someone can use if he wants to delve into pins, in general, at mm -hmm. a later point. Uh, when it comes to pins, um, would you recommend anything in terms of a library or how people should get started if they want to delve into what you're actually researching? Yeah, so so I, th I think that um, the, there's two two real main libraries out there on pins. So actually, I think Nvidia came out with the SimNet library. Yeah. Um, there's also the NeuralPDE.jl library in Julia, and then there's the DPXDE library. Um, so I think that those are like the the three core libraries that people are using and developing um, pins work in. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Um, about misconceptions for, uh, of pins in general, what, do you want to go into details there? Also mathematically. Yeah, so, so one of the things that's always very interesting about pins is that you have a lot of people just kind of show up and just kind of say, I, it's going to solve my PDE 100 times faster, so I want to use a pin. And that is just so not right. Um, you know, I, I think that if you look at the, like, the, for example, the last paragraph of the DeepXD paper, so you know, the DeepXD paper is the one that comes out of Carniadakis' lab at Brown. So you know, they're like the creators of the pin methodology. You look at the, the last paragraph of, the, of that paper, it actually will tell you that, you know, if you're just trying to solve a PDE, a pin is going to be a lot slower than, than solving it, right? But like, you know, if, if you, this, this goes in every paper. Um, if you're trying to do parameter estimation problems, well, solving the inference of the neural network at the same time you're trying to infer parameters from data, you know, that, that that's where kind of, you know, the, the performance starts to, to work out. Also, a lot of the cases where, that the papers are describing are cases where your, your PD is non-local. So if you have like an integral inside of your PD definition, we have fractional derivatives. So if you have like a, you know, uh, DDX to the one fifth power, like the, these kinds of weird cases are where people are showing that like, yeah, pins do really well because of this non-local behavior because you're approximating the whole solution at once. But if you just have, you know, uh, the heat equation or, you know, diffusion invection, you're not going to do any better than your classical method. 
And in fact, you're going to do a lot slower than your classical method because these classical methods are made in many ways to be like optimal solutions to them, right? You, you like part of what you do in a numerical analysis class is you prove that you know you have this high order convergence and all these really nice properties, and, and you know when you have something like Gaussian quadrature, you prove that you have like the optimal convergence of the quadrature methods. And pins don't have those things, right? Neural networks just generally do not have those um, have have those kinds of guarantees or those behaviors. Now, what that means, what that means, though, is that you really have to look at cases where traditional methods were not very good, right? So, like what I mentioned with integral differential equations, if you take an integral inside your differential equation, integrals are are generally a non-local operator, right? You you cannot um, represent an integral by you know just small nudges at a given point, right? It's it's global over over the whole domain that you're integrating. Um, and so that really that, that really messes up discretization types and methods in a lot of ways, right? Because you you it's, it makes it very difficult to to isolate that here I'm going to just look at you know uh, this point and maybe a point to the left and point to the right because if you need to evaluate an integral you need all those other points in the integral. Um, so you need to use bigger implicit methods and all sorts of things. And and in those cases where the where the traditional methods aren't as good, uh, these you know neural network based methods. And, um, tend to do very well. And also very high dimensional cases are very good for neural networks. Um, so if you have a hundred dimensional PDQ, like um, it sounds unreasonable, right? Cause you're like, oh, I have three physical dimensions in time, mm -hmm. but you know, a hundred dimensional PDQ show up in cases where you're naturally representing distributions over the probability distributions over states. So for example, Schrodinger's equation has a dimension for, uh, well, it has two dimensions for every particle, right? Because it has a location and a, a momentum, um, you know, because it's representing a wave function. That wave function has a location and a momentum for every particle. So if you have, you know, three particles, there are six dimensions to your partial differential equation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if you think about these finite difference methods, um, you know, if you have 10 points in every single dimension, and then you say I have 100 dimensions, well, then you have 10 to the 100th power points, which I think I calculated this out once. It's you'd, you'd need 10 to the 82th power of uh, a terabytes of RAM in order to hold that solution just one time step, right? Um, so finite difference methods and even finite element methods just do not scale to very high dimensions. And so this is another case that works out. So I mean, so so I think that in general, like the misconception of with, with pins is like you see a paper that does like you know here I accelerated something with a pin, um, and they ask the question of like oh if I just take it on the problem that I'm already working on, is it faster? If you if if you factor in training time, probably not unless you're working on one of these problems that is very difficult, right? So if you have integral differential equations, high di high dimensional problems, or if you're doing something like parameter inference simultaneous to your PD solving, then yes, you, you, you know, pins will do very well, but it's not going to, you know, it's not going to do better than your, than your traditional fluid dynamics method, unless you kind of incorporate a lot of the tricks of fluid dynamic methods into the pin stuff, which some papers are doing. So. Mm -hmm. So if someone is getting started and is not sure about the efficiency of the pins, how would you approach such a problem if you were a complete beginner? Um, I would say just uh, you know take a look at like the examples of something like neuralpde.jl and you run through the examples and you'll see what exactly what I mean, right? So you'll see that the training process is long. Um, the training process does take time, and um, the, what you get from that is a very is a very fast solution, right? So uh, one of the nice things about a pin is once you've trained it. Once you trained it, it is a solution um, that a it could be a solution that is very fast to get solution to get points out for for any continuous point in time and space. 
Um, but the other thing is that you can train it in such a way that you're actually solving it simultaneously over many parameters. So, um, so you kind of have to look at it and say, what, what is the training time for, for pin kind of like? But now if I'm trying to do this for, you know, like 100 different parameter sets, well, is it faster to do one pin over a larger parameter space, you know, and kind of treat parameters as, a, as another dimension? Or should I have solved 100 of my PD? Then, then you start to have this trade-off, and then that's where you start to be able to find the right use case for pins. Actually, that I think is the first area where people are starting to actually commercialize pins. So if you talk to, to folks at like ANSYS and, you know, and, and these kinds of places, where, where a lot of people are looking to do with pins is because the training time is so expensive and it's in, you know, it, it can generally require, um, you know, non-standard hardware like TPUs. Um, what a lot of commercial companies are actually looking to do is say, let's not even focus on the training time and find problems where we can train the pin for someone and just ship you a solution. So yeah. com uh, CFD is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. You already know the equations for CFD, right? It's an obvious Stokes equations. You, if you if you pick normal uh, boundary uh, conditions, right, and you can just say like you know a square, cube, and all that, um, you know you you can train the pin, and they could just give someone the pre-trained neural network, and you know they can then probe the solution uh, for different parameters, you know physical different physical parameters and such, and, and be able to instantly get results back. And you know so that's really that's much better than giving someone a PD solver for CFD, right? Because if you already know the PD, you know, the PD, you might as well just give them the solution. And so that's really the the way that people are starting to commercialize it. But um, and it's really because they realize that you know you, it's it's hard to understand when the training cost is going to be too much and and how to make use of the training cost effectively. And so their first commercialization aspect is to ignore that. Um, completely and just say we're just going to ship pre-trained models for equations that we know people want to solve. Mm -hmm. um, but if you want to get a sense of it yourself, just start training some pins and, and just get a feel for, you know, what is the cost on given equations of pins versus traditional methods? How is it scaling different? And how does it scale different with different hardware? Because one that's another unique issue with pins where they're very good with these, you know, parallel hardware where like GPUs and TPUs or traditional scientific computing it doesn't parallelize as well with uh, GPUs, right? And so, you know, if you have special hardware available, then you'll see different scaling behavior than if you don't. And you know, th so there's so many factors involved that you kind of have to just try a few things to, to see it right now. Mm -hmm. That's very good that you mentioned GPUs. Um, how, when is a GPU required when dealing with pins and how much scientific computing in general is actually, actually quote unquote, GPUable? Yeah, so, so, um, so, so pins, um, well, so in, in general, I, I think that if, if you have a GPU available, I think that, you know, if you if you do something like Julia, it will install CUDA and everything for you. Because, so it's quite easy to do this experiment. Um, if you just do like add CUDA and then you you create matrices on the GPU and you do a multiply, right? So do, do matrix multiplication on the GPU and do it all locally, right? Um, and see where the cutoff is for your GPU. Normally, what you'll see is that like you'll you'll need at least a hundred by hundred uh, matrix to be you know hundred you know hundred by hundred A times hundred by hundred B is kind of where the cutoff is with the uh, standard architectures. Um, you know, and and so so if you're if you're at about that size, so if your intermediate layers of your neural network are a hundred nodes or hundred twenty eight nodes, you're going to be just as fast on the CPU as as a GPU, right? Because what it's doing internally is that matrix multiplication. Um, and you know, if you're doing matrix vector multiplies instead of matrix multiplies, you know that that cutoff level is going to be higher. And so you can kind of you know play with matrix multiplications on your computer, just kind of see like what size neural network do I need to have the cutoff hit. And generally, 
I mean, you're you're very you can be very comfortable that uh, you know your your problem is in the GPU range if you're talking about intermediate layers of like at least a thousand nodes or more. Um, but what that means is that you know these, these tiny neural networks where you're like, oh, you look, the the Poisson equation is easy. I'm going to you know solve a pin where I have two intermediate layers and they both have twenty nodes. That's not going to be faster on the GPU, right? You you could try it on your computer. Twenty by twenty, you know, matrix multiplies are. You know, I, I think that I, I was talking with a student on this yesterday. I think it's like six times slower on a GPU than is on a CPU, right? So there's no way that training that neural network is going to be faster because it literally just comes down to doing that size matrix multiplication repeatedly, right? Um, so so you do need so where pins where gpus become applicable pins is that when you have large large enough uh, neural networks then they will be able to scale faster uh, scale better um, and what i mentioned before right is that you have this universal approximation theorem that tells you that if you have a very hard problem a pin if you make your neural network big enough it will be able to be solved with that neural network and so kind of you know, goes hand in hand that as you have a more difficult problem, as you get, you'll require bigger neural networks and the GPUs will give you, you know, better and better results. But um, that means that, you know, in a lot of the simpler problems, especially ones in documentation and such, um, a good CPU implementation will actually be better than a good GPU implementation. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so so how much of scientific computing is GPUable is, yeah, I mean, you really have to think about how many, right? So, so GPUs do really well with O of N cubed operations. They do okay with O of n squared operations. Um, they're they're they they marginally work on O of n operations. So if you're just trying to do a bunch of if your algorithm is a bunch of things like you know I do element wise plus and then I do element wise you know uh, divide like think about like a runga kata algorithm. Um, the runga kata algorithm part of it is not going to do much better on the GPU than the CPU because all those operations are O of n. And so you need to have like a cutoff of like 1,000 size. I, th I think the, the cutoff that I found on, on some users' GPU before, just kind of going back and forth on a discourse forum, was around like 5,000 ODEs or something. Um, so if if the you know so so thinking about it like that, it's like if you have a lot of O of n operations and your your problem is dominated by O of n operations, you need five that length 5,000 arrays or so. If your operations are are dominated by um, uh, that's the cutoff point, right? So to mm -hmm. actually see real speed up, you need like you know fifteen thousand or twenty thousand size arrays, right? Um, that that cutoff point goes to around a thousand or so if you have O of n key, uh, O of n squared operations that are your um, that that are your bottleneck, and then it goes down to um, it, go, it goes down to about you know a thousand if you get to um, uh, if you have cases where you're doing a lot of O of n cubed operations like uh, matrix multiplies. Um, but that, that really makes a big assumption that most of your time is in those operations, right? That, you know, all of my time is spent in the matrix multiply, all of my time is spent in the O of N cubed op or, or O of N squared operation that always shows up is a uh, back substitution and in, in adaptive uh, stiff uh, equation solvers. So adaptive stiff OD solvers either spend most of their time in, you know, a factorization, which is O of N cubed, or it spends most of its time in O of N squared uh, back substitutions, and it depends on the problem where that time is spent. And so, you know, whether your GPU is working well on that kind of problem can really depend. But then if you're using a non-stiff OD solver and, you know, everything is just all element-wise operations, you need a pretty huge thing just to get like a 2x or 3x speed up. Mm -hmm. um, there was something else I was going to mention in there. And it's, oh yeah, and that's all assuming that you don't have um, any code that is, you know, terrible on GPUs. 
because some type code is terrible on GPUs, right? So people think that GPUs are, are a fast machine, but in reality, actually, their cores are much slower than a CPU. Every single core of a GPU is much slower than a CPU core, but you have a ten, you know, you have thousands of them. Yeah. And so if you do any operation that is like single core on a GPU, you're gonna, it's gonna be real bad. So, so I think that the case that people um, run into is that uh, some people will try code where you actually index your array. So like, you know, you, like if you, if you write down like Lorenz equation, like U of one times U of two, and like minus U of three, right? You know, you writing the ODE into ODE15S or whatever you saw, right? That code is absolutely terrible in GPs. You should never expect to speed up. In fact, you should actually expect it to be like a thousand times slower. Mm -hmm. um, and so you kind of have to look at your equations and be like, is everything, you know, array-based operations, is everything vectorized, or do I have scalar operations? Um, if you have scalar operations, how much of your time is in the scalar operations versus the matrix multiplies? Um, because what, what the GP will do is it'll treat the two the same. You know, it'll use, it, it's, a, it's a thing that will use all of its cores all the time. So if you tell it to do plus, it's going to do plus on all of its cores. If it doesn't have 5,000 pluses to do, it's just going to use fake data on the, on the extra ones. So when you do a scalar multiply, or when you do when you do like a scalar multiply or like a scalar indexing operation, it's going to do 5,000 scalar indexing operations, and then it's just going to give you the results of the one that you cared about. <laughs> so so you have to really look at your code and be like, is my code very vectorized already? Um, is it vectorized in a way that's using a lot of O of n cubed and O of n squared operations? And um, does it not have a lot of scalar operations? And you, you know, for 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 machine learning, machine learning is just 100% um, vectorized operations and matrix multiplies. So machine learning sees these speed ups like, wow, I get a hundred times. You know, um, when you think about like PDE code, so you are writing scalar operations a lot, right? So you really have to think about is the way of vectorizing this. You know, I will lose some performance because of memory management, things like that. Is the way of vectorizing it, um, do I actually get a speed up because am I actually using more O of n cubed operations? There's a lot to think about um, when, when trying to GPU the scientific computing code. So a lot of it is not GPUable if you have a lot of nonlinearities, like in reaction diffusion equations. But if you have a lot of, you know, these regular partial differential equations, which is applying a stencil, then you know. Then you can formulate it as a sparse matrix times a, you know, times a vector or a matrix. And in that case, you know, then you can kind of get your speed ups back. But it really comes down to the, the formulation of your equations and making sure you can turn it into these big vectorizable operations. Mm -hmm. This is by far one of the best explanations I've ever had, Chris. I appreciate it. Um, you talked about also advantages and disadvantages of pins. Can we maybe? pack this under the topic of advantages and limitations of pins and maybe like in, in three, maybe four sentences explain advantages and limitations of pins. Yeah, so um, some of the advantages of pins is that if you don't have the correct model, you can make it so that way your model is still kind of there, but it's also using whatever data you have on hand because you can make it be so that way your model is just kind of a regularization, right? Um, it also gives you a continuous solution. So if you train a pin once, um, you know, and also include parameters as as another dimension in there, then you can check at any you know in any x t and parameters. You can just get what the solution is without retraining if you if you trained it over your whole space. Um, the limitations though is that you do have to turn this into an entire machine learning problem, which means it could be. In general, it actually requires a lot more compute. Whether it's actually faster, it comes down to whether you find enough tricks 
for your problem. So like, you know, you can do things like, oh, my, my neural network can be symmetric. And it, you know, there's all these different tricks you can try to do to make the, the training time go down. But generally, the limitation is that the training time is going to be expensive, even more expensive than the traditional solving. And um, you need to make sure you use like all the latest hardware and parallelism to make, to make it even practical and in, in, in the hard cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Got it. That was very well summarized. Um, one last thing before we wrap things up uh, about numerical stability. I'm not an expert in this, but can you maybe go into a little bit into depth? Uh, um, there are methods mm-hmm. which are numerically stiff and some which are not stiff. Can you maybe talk about this and how relevant is it for an application? Yeah. So, so, um, so yeah, so the stiffness is a very big numerical analysis issue, right? Where it's like, if you have a way to think about it is if you have very fast terms and you're very slow terms, um, most explicit numerical methods are trying to, you know, if you, if you think about your derivative estimate, if you have like, let's say I have a, a hill going like this, right? Now, so that's my slow motion. My fast motion is, is just a sine wave and I have a really quick sine wave, right? Mm-hmm. So you can imagine putting a sine wave on the hill and, you know, it's kind of this like little jaggedy hill, right? And now if you ask yourself, what is the derivative of the, of the equation at any point in the hill, right? Like mm-hmm. what you wanted to say is you wanted to, you wanted to kind of give you something that follows the curve, but it's not going to, right? Because if you, if you think about like that, that sine wave, right? Like if you, if you think about this wiggle, if you follow that little wiggle right there, it's going to be pointing almost straight up, right? Because, you know, that little sine wave is going to have like this, this maximum of its upward motion at some point when it's moving up this hill. This is where stiffness comes in, right? Where, where, you know, you, you want to follow the hill. But the fact that you have these little tiny wobbles, if you take Euler's method and you say, what is my derivative right now? It says, oh, it's 10,000 because just a little bit in the future, it's going to be minus 10,000, right? Like mm. on average, it averages out. But if you take Euler's method and you say, my derivative is 10,000 meters per second. And so I step forward, you know, for one second, then you're like, you know, you go from the hill all the way up to here, right? And and that's what, that's the issue with explicit methods on, on, um, step problems, right? You have this time scale separation. You're trying to walk on the long time scale, but the short time scales, uh, the short time scales changes are supposed to be averaged out. Um, but explicit methods won't average them out. They'll just take the derivative now and step forward. And that is going to be a really bad estimate. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people have worked for a very long time on differential equation solvers for how to do this stiffness handling. So that's where these implicit methods and OD15S comes in and all these kinds of things. Now we're getting to uh, scientific machine learning, right? And with physical informed neural networks and, and neural differential equations, and these issues are showing up again. And the way that they're showing up is that, um, you know, when, when you're trying to do uh, gradient descent, right? When you're trying to learn these, these objects, you do gradient descent. And what gradient descent actually is, is it's the Euler method on an ODE defined by the gradient, right? Um, it's actually you're just taking steps by the size of the gradient where you have a learning rate, which is essentially the delta P in like parameter space of how you're moving, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the stiffness of the equation you're trying to learn is then turning into stiffness of the um, of the equation that you're trying to optimize, where now instead of uh, giving you properties of Jacobian, it gives you ill-conditionedness in the Hessian. Um, and, and so what, what people are starting to look into is, you know, how do you have to handle this? Well, you know, we know that explicit methods, like, you know, using Euler's method is bad on stiff equations. And so you need to change the optimizer that you're using, or you need to change your neural network to be able to handle these kinds of problems. Um, 
In fact, a lot of what our recent work is showing is that neural networks are actually a really bad architecture for stiff equations. And a way to kind of see this is if you take random neural networks and you ask the question of, you know, how how much do I get an eigenvalue separation in the Jacobian by, you know, like 10 to the fifth? Like, you know, if, if you have a parameter difference of 10 to the fifth in your model, like, you know, you have a, something fast and something slow, um, you'd, accept, you'd, you'd want your equation solver to be able to handle that, right? And if you look at like what neural networks do naturally, and you just ask for random uh, parameters of, or net random weights of the neural network, how often do I see you know ch changes of that much? It's essentially zero, which means that you know there's very few parameters of a neural network that could ever give you a result that is as you know that is as time scale separated as your stiff equation, and and that is why it's so hard for them to, to learn them, right? It's so hard for them to train on them because there's very few parameters that can actually be a good solution to it. And so and there's two things that need to be done. Then like more people need to work on the optimizers for these stiff problems and more people need to work on new architectures that don't naturally have this, you know, um, I mean, essentially in, in an engineer sense, neural networks, they are biased in their frequency domain to drop off lower frequency terms. And that is why they're having these issues with stiffness. And so is there something like neural networks that keep higher frequency terms? Are there something like neural networks that uh, handle the stiffness better? Um, we, we, we put out some one paper, which is on continuous time echo state networks, which changes the, the it changes the, the training process completely to get rid of uh, gradient uh, descent. So that way you can actually do a SVD factorization to get the, the solution. Um, and we show that we can handle these uh, really stiff equations where pins fail. Um, but that's only like what we, we're still using something that's kind of derivative from a, from a neural network. And so like we were still thinking that we can probably do a lot better by you know, changing the architecture, using different things. And so I think this is going to be a really ripe area, right? Because, um, you know, in, in the 1970s, uh, you know, SIF equations were really hard to solve. And, you know, people spent, you know, 30 years of work so that way you can use ODE15S and, you know, that thing is your true champion and it'll give you a solution. And now you probably don't even think about solving stiff ODEs anymore, right? Like most engineers just use a stiff ODE solver and it gives you a solution. And um, I think that there's going to be a whole line of research around scientific machine learning that is, how do you do that with scientific machine learning? How do you take stiff equations and, you know, data from stiff equations or stiff models, and how do you make it just as good as stiff ODE solvers? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of pathologies and a lot of gradient issues uh, to solve that need, that need to be solved in order to get there. Mm -hmm. What do you see your, the area of research that you are doing, or PINs in general, like in five, maybe 10 years? Where would you like to see it going? What, what I'd like to see it going is um, essentially, well, I, I think there's two aspects to it. I think in the, in the academic aspect, I think that'd be really nice to see a lot of these results on like new neural network architectures and things which handle stiff equations well, right? Mm -hmm. Essentially, all these problems that we run into with, um, with uh, you know, real physical problems like stiffness and handling certain symmetries and, you know, uh, how, how do you make sure that your, your differential equation solution by a neural network satisfies all these properties? You know, it, will, it shouldn't come down to chance or, you know, by trying to force the loss function kind of find weights to make it to work. You should be able to find an object such that it naturally has rotational symmetry and allows stiffness, right? And, and so I think that, um, you know, in, in five years, I'd like to see a lot of these results. And we, sh we shouldn't be using the standard neural network today. We should be using something that, you know, physic is physically motivated and can only by, you know, by, by design can only give you physically true solutions. Um, the other thing is that we should have, you know, better optimization techniques that handle these gradient pathologies. And I think that, you know, it should be 
as simple as a stiff OD solver, right? You, someone should be able to just come write down their equation in like an almost symbolic sense. And then, you know, the, the OD solver just like does it all the stuff adaptively underneath the hood, goes boop, 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 and it spits out a solution, right? Like, you know, like most people shouldn't know how this stuff works, but still would be able to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, us as, as a community in scientific machine learning have not gotten there, right? Like you need to choose neural networks. You need to, you know, be able to diagnose whether you got a gradient pathology because of stiffness or, you know, you have to kind of, you really have to push it around a bit, but um, hopefully in five to 10 years, we'll be able to have these, these codes like DeepXD and NeuralPDE.jl that just kind of take your equation and, you know, use the whole research of everything that's going gone on in, in the field and just be able to solve most equations without much work. Right. And won't be able to solve everything, right? Just like how, you know, OD5S or CVODE, you can find equations where they don't do well. But, um, you know, but 99% of problems should be solvable in a way that's almost automated. And that's where I think we should get to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a million more questions once because you're explaining it in such an uh, easy to understand way um, that you want to know more about PINs, but we'll come to resources in a moment. Uh, before that, I have the question, how important do you think uh, explainable AI is for PINs? Yeah, so I uh, so I don't know if the explainable AI techniques themselves are as um, useful. I mean, that this is really just my personal opinion that you know um, what explainable AI techniques try to do is they try to say if I've trained a neural network, how do I figure out what happened in the neural network? Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, how do I figure out like which which input is affecting which output and all that? And I can see that being if you don't have prior physical knowledge or anything embedded in what in what you're doing. I can see that being useful. Um, but when you get to something like a physics informed neural network, I kind of think what's more interesting at that point is, well, can I do symbolic regression, right? Because if you if you think that your solution is actually supposed to be something that's a mathematical equation that you can that you can look at, um, how do you actually get the the you know, can you turn neural networks into LaTeX for that describe the function of that neural network in a human readable mechanistic way? And that's a symbolic regression question. And you know, there's some really nice work by like Stephen Brunton and Nathan Kurtz, and mm-hmm. you know, we did some stuff in our uh, universal differential equation work, and you know, there's all this kind of work that's trying to look into, you know, new ways to do the symbolic regression on the trained neural networks, and um, and and so th- th- that I think is, um, you know, it's a form of explainable AI, and I, I think that to an engineer it is like the true explanation, right? Like if I give you a mechanistic equation, you can probably go, oh, this is the force term. Oh, and you added a quadratic force like that's you know like that that tells you what what actually happened right and so I kind of think that you know that is most of these explainable AI techniques I don't follow too much because they're more for explaining what you know a neural network learns in image processing and things like that and I don't think that those are too relevant mm-hmm. but these symbolic regression techniques I think are what we would think of as uh, you know giving an explanation to the neural network and I think that there's a lot of work to do in that domain uh, that, that's so cool Chris uh, and I hope I have a million more questions because you explained it in such an enthusiastic way and I wish that we can have you on the channel maybe explaining or showing how we can use these frameworks that would be great maybe if you have the time um talking about the frameworks and resources I mean you mentioned some but can we um maybe uh, maybe can, you can explain or give us some resources or top papers that someone should read when going into the field of pins. Yeah, um, so there's a, I, w- I would say that like a really nice paper um, that I don't think enough people have read is there's a paper from 1992, which is how do you solve a neural network with ODE? Uh, how do you solve an ODE with a neural network? Um, and uh, I, I'm not remembering the name right now. I could definitely um, share the resource though. And um, 
it is very readable because it's you know before like the main age of, of ml and everything and so it's very down to earth like you define a neural network here you define these derivatives and hey look this thing will work and you know it kind of explains the method in a very in a very easy way um but it's also not at the full difficulty now if you want to get to the more difficult kind of equations you know then and I think that uh, Rossi's paper on deep hidden physics or, you know, the physics, you know, the, the papers that really form the physics and form neural networks uh, work, which is, you know, Rossi, uh, Perdicaris, and uh, and uh, Carniadakis and, and Brown, right? Um, those, those papers are really a good intro, right? So they they, they started the field of pins. Um, and because in the reason why everyone kind of goes back to them is because they're really well written. Um, and, and so I'd also kind of say like the, the, the paper on DeepXTE is also a fairly well-written paper if you're kind of just interested in like how are these codes kind of developed. And then from there, I think that the codes themselves like neuropd.jl DeepXTE um, are very accessible. And, um, you know, I, I think that neuropd.jl, it can actually spit out the code that tells you like, here's the code that I'm actually going to be training. And so I think that if you really want to learn what it's doing, you know, write down some equations and then tell it to spit out the code for you. You can start to see like, oh, here, here's actually the neural network that I'm defining and here's actually the, the training process it's doing. And if you link it back to the literature, you can then really understand it well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's great. Uh, so with that being said, Chris, thank you so much. I hope that we maybe have a second part in the future. Let's see. Or maybe, as I mentioned, a deep dive session um, with you, maybe mm -hmm. showing something on the channel that would be great. Then we can have kind of a discussion how to use these tools or maybe the libraries that you mentioned. Uh, mm -hmm. Anything else you want to say to the audience, Chris, where, where they can find you or... Oh yeah, um, I, actually, uh, one one other resource just came to mind. So um, there was a doing scientific machine learning workshop that you know if you type into Google doing scientific machine learning, it is essentially four hours where the first half hour is an introduction to to the, the methods, and then the next you know three and a half hours is just uh, live coding going through how do you train neural networks to solve differential equations and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So if you really want a deep dive like uh, uh, you know with with all the code and everything, that is a very good reference um, that you know is st still very recent, just last uh, August. So um, so yeah, but uh, so sorry that just came to mind. What, what was the, the final question there though? <laughs> the final final one was if you have any last words for the audience, let's say um, where they can find you, for example, or papers mm -hmm. that they should read from you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so so um, I, I think that you know, if if you want to kind of go deeper into the scientific machine learning world, I'd say definitely check out the the universal differential equations paper, just because you know, it kind of showcases how you can do more of you know, instead of just starting to say like I have equations and I have data, you can start to say I have equations with the you know, partially defined and they have uncertainty here and they you know, so so you can really start getting into more depth into how you're using the data in very specific parts and. Um, I think that one one of the other things is that um, well, one of the other things is to just get in touch with me in, in for example on Twitter or in the Julia Lang Slack so www.julialang.org/slash/slack. Um, we have very active chat channels in, in you know differential equations and scientific machine learning. So to join you can join the chat. I think that there's like 600 people or something in these chats. Um, so they're quite active and. Everyone's really interested in these topics, and you know the, the developers of the library, such as me and a lot of my students, a lot of my collaborators, are all in there as well. So if you want to know more about the libraries or get involved in the development, that's the right place to do it. Oh, that's excellent! Um, so thank you so much, Chris. Uh, I wish you all the best, and this was a very interesting podcast. I, I, I'm looking forward to to release it as soon as I can. Um, thank you so much, and uh, hope to see you in the second part. Yep. Thanks for having me. Thanks.